Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, good to see you once again. And great to be with you, Brian, as always. Where would you like to begin today? I know there, there's always a lot going on in any given moment. I know there are some Supreme Court decisions forthcoming, and I, I know you prefer to be informed on those before you start to opine. But um, I understand there's a case that uh, the Center for Moral Law is working on that uh, would be of interest to our listeners. I think it could be of interest because it's different from most of the types of cases that we do. And it involves the basic issue of the civil liberties or rights of a criminal defendant in a case where we believe a criminal defendant in this case has been wrongly convicted of an offense. And, you know, I kind of cut my teeth politically and legally back in the 1960s, back at a time when you had the Students for a Democratic Society and the Youth International Party and other of these radical groups that were rioting and demonstrating and were really fighting against what I thought were basic principles of law and order and trying to, in my opinion, destroy our constitutional republic. And as against those people, it seemed like the police and law enforcement authorities and the courts, the lower courts particularly, were trying to uphold law and order, which is essential for society. And so I tended to be very much on the side of law and order, on the side of prosecution. And I tended to view those who were pushing for more rights for criminal defendants as simply people who were defending the guilty and trying to enable them to get away with crimes and so on. And anyway, over the years, my perspective has changed some. I'd like to think it's become balanced. But... There's a saying sometimes that a neoliberal is a conservative who has been arrested. And a neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged. In other words, having something like that happen to you changes your perspective. Last night, for example, watching Newsmax, there was a lady from, I believe it was San Francisco or maybe Los Angeles, Angeles, who she was a young mother, and she and her baby were intentionally, it appeared, run down by a teenage driver who was also a convicted felon. And anyway, she, the teen driver was only going to get kind of a supervised probation and so on, just an extremely light sentence. And this lady was outraged by this. He tried to take my life and my baby's life, she's saying. And then she went on to say that actually I'm, I'm left of center. I'm a liberal and I vote Democrat, but I think this is outrageous. Well, what she needs to realize is she is voting for people who put those policies into effect. But at the same time, we are seeing, and personally, I believe with the January 6th demonstrators and some of whom got way out of hand and committed some illegality, but it wasn't anywhere close to an insurrection. 
some of these people who are being held in jail for over a year right now, I think we're seeing a gross abuse of civil liberties there. And so conservatives have to realize that being on the side of the police is not simply the default position that we take. Yes, we certainly believe that the policeman is ordained by God, and he is a servant or minister of God to preserve law and order. But at the same time, God has prescribed civil liberties for criminal defendants. We're going to talk about that more as we look more into these precepts of Hebrew law. And what I'm trying to get at with all of this is that just within the last few years, it seems that more and more conservatives have started to advocate criminal justice reform. And I think this is overdue, that really liberals, when they don't even believe in such a thing as objective truth, or when they believe that justice is social justice and not based on the facts of the case, but designed to favor what classes they want to favor, they really have no reason for criminal justice reform. They favor an all-powerful state. But those of us who believe in law and order believe that criminals need to be punished, but we also believe that those in the government need to obey the law as well. And there are certain rights that are guaranteed in the Constitution to make sure that people are not falsely convicted of crimes. We need to also make sure that even when they are being convicted, that their punishments are proportionate to their offenses and that they be treated with a certain humanity. And so I think it is time, and it's starting to happen, conservatives need to get on the movement for a criminal justice reform. And one area that I've been concerned about for a long time, and we filed an amicus brief in the Tim's case, but before the Supreme Court coming out of Mississippi, out of, I'm sorry, out of Indiana, case involving a guy who was picked up for drugs and he was guilty and he was sentenced, an appropriate sentence for his crime. But then they took his $40,000 pickup truck, which he'd used his inheritance from his father to buy, and had him forfeit that because he had used the truck in delivering the, the drugs. I've always felt that doing things like that, which we call civil forfeiture, is a civil liberties violation. For one thing, I think it is a wrongful co-mingling of the criminal justice system and the civil justice system. For another thing, I think it is trying to achieve through the civil justice things, things that you could not achieve through the criminal justice system, because in criminal justice, you have to give the defendant certain rights. For example, the presumption of innocence, requirement that guilt be proven by proof beyond a reasonable doubt, a trial, and all the things that go with the trial and so on, right to counsel and so on. In a forfeiture proceeding, commonly the burden of proof is on the defendant to prove that he didn't use that vehicle or that house or that other piece of property in the commission of this offense. And in fact, the forfeited property may even belong to somebody else and the defendant was just using it. Anyway, there are more and more conservatives that are seeking to get reforms on 
civil forfeiture. I personally would go a step beyond that, and I would say civil forfeiture should be abolished entirely if we are not punishing criminals sufficiently by the criminal conviction and sentence, then maybe we need to beef up those sentences. But we shouldn't be employing the, the civil system in order to achieve a criminal justice aim. And I might point out one thing else, too, that we've been fighting for this here in Alabama, making some progress, but many of those in law enforcement have been opposed to us on this. And frankly, much of the reason that they're opposed is that they fund a lot of their police projects and so on, new equipment for police officers and so on, based on forfeited property. And so they have a built-in conflict of interest in seeking to enforce this sort of thing. Well, anyway, that's just one area. But what I would like to really talk about more right now is a case that the Foundation is working on, and it involves a man who is serving a life with possibility of parole sentence, but at any rate, basically, what it is for is shoplifting. There's a little more to it than that, and I'll try to go into the details of it. So let me explain what happened here. This is down in, in southern Alabama, in Baldwin County. That's right near Mobile. And anyway, this man was stopped by the loss prevention officers of <clears throat> the Lowe's. Lowe's is a, basically a hardware store kind of like Home Depot, one of those. But anyway, they stopped him for shoplifting a roof nailer. Now, a roof nailer is sometimes called a nail gun. Some of you use to drive nails, and commonly it's used in roofing, although it can be used for other purposes too. It can't be used as a weapon. I mean, you can't use it to shoot nails at somebody. You couldn't even put it up to somebody's body and drive a nail into the body unless you have a compressor with it, which Willie did not. And so it's not really a weapon, but it's treated as such. And let's explain why. Let's explain why after the break. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Talking a little bit about uh, civil asset forfeiture. Colonel, I'm with you on this one. If there, was, if there was an aspect of criminal justice that needs reform, I'd put that one right in, towards the top of the list. Well, and so would I. The case I'm going to look at right now is a case where I think we need some criminal justice reform, but this isn't civil asset forfeiture. Frankly, this guy doesn't have any assets to forfeit. But anyway, as I was saying, this man had shoplifted a roof nailer. The retail value of it was $249. And he was on his way. What he'd done is he had stuffed it inside his pants. And so he is on his way to the outside of the store when he is stopped by 
security officials at the store, they're loss prevention officers, they're called, and they tell him that they're apprehending him for shoplifting, and they ask him to accompany them back to the office. Well, he willingly goes back with them. But remember, he has this roof nailer that he has inside his pants, and he's walking with that roof nailer inside his pants, and as he's walking, it shifts position, starts hitting against his leg, and starting to fall down his leg. Anyway, so he kind of doubles over to straighten this out, and in the process, he says, I have a gun. Very unfortunate choice of words, but that's what people often call the roof nailer, a nail gun. And anyway, the store official took this as a threat with a weapon, although afterward he concluded there wasn't any basis for that, and so he tackled him and wrestled him to the ground and found the nailer in his pants there and took it, and then they proceeded to treat this as a shoplifting offense. But because of that statement, I have a gun, he was charged with not shoplifting, but armed robbery. Now, robbery is different from theft. It's a form of theft, but it involves something more. Robbery involves theft by force or threat of force. And armed robbery involves theft, but theft not just like going into a store and stealing something or even going to somebody's house and stealing something. It involves taking something from a person, that is something that a person is carrying, taking it from the person, and doing so with a threat of armed force. Now, when I say armed force, that doesn't necessarily mean the person actually has to have a weapon. Let's say, for example, that I walk into a bank and I, let's say I take my left hand and I put it inside my coat like this, and, well, you can't see it, of course, but anyway, with my finger pointing out so it looks like I have a gun under my coat, and I'm pointing that gun at the teller, and I'm saying, give me all my money, all your money. That would be armed robbery, even if it turned out that was only my finger and not a weapon. But it could cause people to panic and so on. So since it is a threat of force, that can be called armed robbery. The problem here, though, is, number one, in the case of Willie, the offense was already over. I would say the offense was over with when he surrendered to the officials as they stopped him going out of the store. So anything he did after that was not part of the theft offense itself. But secondly, in Alabama, if a person is in the situation I described where they're holding like their finger under their coat to appear to be having a weapon, that simply creates in Alabama a rebuttable presumption that the person is armed, but that presumption is rebutted as soon as they search the person and find out that he isn't. And so we're arguing in this case that even if he had made a threat, that would not be called, that not be considered armed robbery because any 
presumption that he had a weapon was rebutted by the subsequent search. Beyond that, though, I think it very clear as you look to what actually happened, he wasn't threatening them with a supposed weapon. Rather, he was simply telling them why he had to double over and adjust this thing in his pants. I have a gun. If he had said, I have a nail gun, sure, there wouldn't have been any problem. They probably already knew he had that. They probably saw him take it. But anyway, because of that very, very unfortunate choice of words, they chose to charge him with armed robbery. The jury convicted him of armed robbery. And since he had three prior theft offenses, he was treated as a habitual offender and sentenced to life imprisonment with possibility of parole. Now, he tried to appeal this, and at the appellate level, the Court of Criminal Appeals in Alabama, and then the Alabama Supreme Court basically just looked through the procedural issues, and they said, well, you know, it looks like all the procedures were followed, and so we don't see any violations here, and so we're simply going to affirm the conviction and the sentence, and it stood. But one person on the Supreme Court very, very strongly disagreed and dissented, and that was Chief Justice Roy Moore when he was still on the Supreme Court. And everybody else thought, okay, all the procedures have been followed, case closed, affirmed. Chief Justice Moore said, yes, but you're overlooking one minor detail. The guy is not guilty of armed robbery. Well, after Moore was removed from the Supreme Court, he continued to be troubled by this case. And when the case came to his attention later, he decided to take a personal interest in it. And so he decided that the foundation would undertake the defense of Willie. We heard, first of all, to the Circuit Court of Appeals and all we could do there, because of the time factor, you know, it's already on the appeal route and so on. But So now we go into federal court, and all we can do in federal court is file a petition for a writ of habeas corpus. But the writ of habeas corpus was denied because there is a federal statute, a federal rule, that provides that in order to prevent there being too many writs of habeas corpus petition, rather, you can only have one habeas corpus petition. And you can have a second one only if the Circuit Court of Appeals approves, which they almost uniformly do not. They almost routinely deny all requests for a second appeal. He had... Willie had previously, years earlier, filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus with a fellow inmate, one of these jailhouse lawyers, filing it for him. Willie didn't even remember it had been filed. And so when the attorney first filed that habeas corpus petition, he didn't realize what it filed. When it was, then he asked for permission to file a second, and the permission was denied. At that point, I was asked to get involved in it. 
we took the matter up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And we pointed out that under Article I, Section 10 of the Constitution, there we are told that the writ of habeas corpus may not be suspended except in case of war or national emergency. This isn't a war or national emergency. And a rule like this, especially the way it's being applied, is in effect a suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. Anyway, let's continue with this after the break. to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Again, we are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. All right, Colonel, let's pick up right where we left off. Okay, we were talking about a fellow named Willie, a 56-year-old man, and Willie is serving a life sentence right now for armed robbery based on the shoplifting of a nail gun, but life, because as a habitual offender, he had three prior nonviolent theft offenses. Anyway, so the Supreme Court decided not to hear our petition for writ of certiorari. You know, they turned down 99% of all cert petitions. And so uh, mathematically, we just knew the odds of their hearing this were very small. So our next step, which we're working on right now, is in the courts of Alabama. And we are bringing a habeas petition in the courts of Alabama on his behalf. Now, a habeas corpus petition, most people know that term, but don't really know what it means. Habeas is for let me have, corpus means body. Maybe so habeas corpus is simply a petition saying, let me have my body. What it means is you are holding my body in jail, and I demand that you either show good cause for holding it or release it. And Sir William Blackstone referred to it as the great writ and the glory of the common law. It is there to give a prisoner an opportunity for relief when under all the statutes and rules, there's nothing else that he can turn to. And so we're arguing in Alabama, the Article 1, Section 17 of the Alabama Constitution sets forth a writ of habeas corpus. We're arguing that the Alabama provision is stronger than the federal. The federal simply says that the writ may not be suspended except in war or national emergency. Alabama just says it can't be suspended, period, over and out, no exceptions. So we're saying it is stronger here. Anyway, so we're bringing that petition right now. And... We're going to see what happens to it. In the meantime, we're also trying to get an early parole board hearing for Willie. He can apply for a parole hearing this December, which seems pretty close. However, all that means is he can apply for a hearing, which means he would get a hearing sometime in 2023. And so that's a long time off. Willie has one lung. He's not in good health. His wife, who needs him at home, is also not in good health. And 
Anyway, we need something sooner. So we've applied to the Bureau of Prisoner Parole. The problem is to get an early hearing date from them in Alabama and other states, it might be simpler, but here you have to get it signed off by, first of all, the governor's attorney, and second, by the attorney general. And I can only say that we're working on that, but that's an uphill battle. Anyway, that's the case of Willie. And what I'm trying to show here is that as conservatives, if we believe in constitution, constitutional rights, we recognize that those rights apply to criminal defendants. And we believe that crime demands punishment. punishment. Criminals should pay for their crimes. But before they do, there should be all measures in place to make sure that they are not wrongly convicted or that they're not given a sentence that is disproportionate to the crime. And not only is that what our Constitution requires, it is also what biblical law requires. And so with that, let's move to the more long-range eternal things. I'm only saying, as we look to Willie's case, criminal justice reform is something that conservative Christians need to get on board with. And we need to really be driving that agenda. That is an issue tailor-made for us. But we've been talking about the principles of Hebrew law. We've looked at the Ten Commandments, for example. But let's look at some of the basic precepts that Hebrew law is based on. And the first of these is that God exists, that he is one God, monotheism. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is all-present. He is righteous. He is just. He is truthful, he is unchangeable, and he is merciful and loving. And E.C. Wines, in his commentaries on the laws of the ancient Hebrews, says that this principle, the unity of God, has profound implications for law and government. As he says, all the ancient lawgivers called in the aid of religion to strengthen their perspectives. Thus did Menes in Egypt, Minos in Crete, Calmus and Thebes, Lycurgus and Sparta, Seleucus and Locris, and Numa and Rome. But the procedure of Moses differed fundamentally from that of these heathen legislators. They employed religion in establishing their political institutions, while he made use of a civil constitution as a means of perpetuating religion. Thus Moses made the worship of the one only God, the fundamental law of his civil institutions. This law was to remain forever unalterable through all the changes which lapse of time might introduce into his constitution. So, monotheism. First principle, there is one God, and therefore there is one truth, and there is one law, and there is one correct law system. The second is that God is the source of all true law. As Isaiah says in chapter 33, 22, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Now you look in that passage and you see there all three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial. The Lord is our judge, judicial. The Lord is our lawgiver, legislative. The Lord is our king, executive. 
all three branches, all three functions of government are combined right there in God with Isaiah 33:22. And this means that any premise that is contrary to the higher law of God is invalid. Sir William Blackstone certainly recognized this when Blackstone said that there are basically three categories of law. There is the revealed law, which he says is found only in the Holy Scriptures. There is the law of nature, which he says is the will of God, but it is found in nature because God has given us the power of reason to apprehend this. And then he says there is municipal law, that is the law of government, not just municipalities, but government as a whole, and that is the attempt by legislators and kings and others to take these higher principles of God's law, the revealed and the natural law, and apply them to civil society. And Blackstone says, upon these two foundations, the revealed law and the law of nature, depend all human laws. That is, no law should be allowed to contradict any of these. Anyway, so the idea then that law, true law, is a reflection of the higher law of God. As Jefferson says in the Declaration of Independence, the laws of nature and of nature's God. Part of that law of nature is that all men are created equal. And again, we emphasize created equal does not mean that they're going to end up at the same place in life. Doesn't mean they have the same abilities, the same work ethic, the same character, and so on. It means an equal place of the starting point, equal in the love of God, equal in the way of salvation, and equal before the law. Doesn't mean that everybody's going to have the same wealth, the same popularity, the same influence, and so on. Anyway, so law then reflects the will. And the character of God is our third point. God is the source of all law, the second. God, the law reflects his will and character is the third. As you read in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Laws issued by pagan gods might be arbitrary, capricious, whimsical, unreasonable. Laws issued by mere men, or maybe men who think they're gods, are going to be even more arbitrary and capricious than that. But God's laws reflect his will, and they reflect his character. Now we come to a fourth principle, and this ties in with what we've already been saying in regard to Willie's case, that God's justice requires punishment for sin. So let's look at how God's law requires punishment after the break.
This is our fourth and final segment of Constitution Classroom today here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. All right, Colonel, I believe you were going to explain to us how God's law requires punishment. Exactly. That's the fourth principle. Again, reviewing these principles. God exists. He is one God. Therefore, there is one law and one truth. Second, that God is the source of all true law. Third, that law reflects the will and the character of God. And now the fourth principle, that God's justice requires punishment for sin. This seems to be clear from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Ezekiel 18.4, we read, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And then Ezekiel repeats that later in the same chapter, verse 20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now, God doesn't need to repeat something to make it true. But sometimes he repeats things in Scripture because they are so contrary to what we want to believe that he reemphasizes them just to make them sink in with us. We would certainly prefer to believe that God can just simply overlook sin, that God is a nice sugar daddy who just thinks, well, we'll just forget about it. After all, boys will be boys and girls will be girls. And so we'll just write it off and forget about it. Or there are some who even think that Christ's death on the cross was just a token payment for sin and that because he paid for maybe one-tenth of one percent of our sins by dying on the cross, that because of that gesture, God just decided to write off all the rest. No, the soul that sinneth that shall die, or as Paul says in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. God cannot compromise his standards of righteousness. He is absolute holiness, and he would be compromising those standards. He is absolute justice, and it would be a violation of his character then to compromise his justice. And so God's justice requires punishment for sin. Now we know, of course, that on the cross, Christ paid that penalty for us. Nevertheless, when we look to crimes against civil government, those crimes need to be paid. God's attributes include perfect righteousness and perfect justice, so he doesn't overlook sin. His law requires punishment. Now, in the Old Testament, we saw substitutionary atonement in the form of the sacrifices. That animal being sacrificed was our substitute, that animal was dying in our place, but also that animal was there as a type of the coming Messiah who would die for all. And anyway, in that way, you might say that sacrifice, which is common to many religions, but in Judaism and in Christianity, sacrifice has a unique role. In most religions, sacrifice simply has the purpose of appeasing the God's wrath or gaining the God's favor because we've shown such devotion to our God by sacrificing a portion of our crops or sacrificing our bulls or sacrificing maybe even our firstborn. Because of that devotion, the God is going to think favorably of us. But that is not the case with Christianity and Judaism. 
In Christianity and Judaism, sacrifice is not simply to appease his wrath, not simply to gain his favor. It is to satisfy his justice. And so sacrifice plays a unique purpose in Judaism and in Christianity because God's justice requires punishment for sin. Now we're going to see in just a few moments, or maybe that'll have to wait until next week, but see that man, this is the fifth principle, man is created in God's image. That's one of the reasons he doesn't just wipe us all off the face of the earth. He could, but he doesn't, and he doesn't do that in part because we are of value. God has created us in his image. And so we see the principle set forth in Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. That is the first passage in Scripture where we see punishment for sin specifically authorized by God. I say the first passage in Scripture, we can go back to the, the mark of Cain, way back there in Genesis chapter 4. That's another issue we can talk about another time, but... Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because human life is cheap? No, look to the rest of the verse. The reason is exactly the opposite. For in the image of God made he man. Because man is created in God's image. Man has human dignity. There are human rights that attach to that dignity. And his life has infinite value. As the psalmist says concerning man, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. We're not just simply evolved from animals. We're not just simply created as maybe a rather special animal. We're created above the animals. We're created in a way that we can have an intimate relationship with God in a way that animals cannot. And we are created with a power of reason, and therefore we are given dominion over animals. That dominion over animals includes not only the right to use animals and plants as well, for clothing, for food, for other, other things like this. But it also is what we would call a stewardship mandate. That is a responsibility that God has given man to take good care of his creation. The question I would ask is, what basis does Darwinism give for sound conservation? What basis does Darwinism give for saving endangered species? or even for saving sick or defective human beings. By Darwin's laws of natural selection, survival of the fittest, they ought to die out. But biblical creation gives a reason. He placed man in the garden to tell it and to keep it. He gave him responsibility to practice a sound conservation ethic. And because all are created in God's image, we have a responsibility to take care of those among ourselves that might be unable to take care of themselves. And so we have infinite value, and if that is part of the basis for human rights, 
Now comes another problem. We've seen God's law. We have now seen that man is created in God's image, and therefore man has infinite value. However, ever since the fall, this is the sixth point, man has been and continues to be sinful. We see that sin coming in with the Garden of Eden, a sin of pride, first of all, and wanting to be like God. But we see it throughout history. As David says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or as Isaiah says in 53.6, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is Christ, the iniquity of us all. The fact of sin, we are separated from God because of our limited human understanding. We don't always understand God's law. And because of our depraved nature, we don't always obey even the parts of God's law that we do understand. Okay, so God has to punish sin. God has created man with infinite value, but man is a sinner. That being the case, man is going to be regularly violating God's laws. That means we're going to see a society full of sinners violating God's laws and violating each other's rights, people murdering each other, stealing from each other, assaulting each other, enslaving each other, and so on. And so... In order to make sure that doesn't happen, or at least to keep it restrained, here comes the seventh principle. God has established human government to punish crime and preserve order. But principle eight, and we're going to talk more about these next time, before government may punish crime, great precautions must be taken to ensure that no one is wrongly convicted because even that person under accusation is created in the image of God. More next week.